Chapter twenty four of He Fell in Love with His Wife. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. He Fell in Love with His Wife by Edward P. Rowe. Chapter twenty four Given Her Own Way. On Monday, the absorbing work of the farm was renewed and every day brought to Holcroft long and exhausting hours of labour. While he was often taciturn, he evidently progressed in cheerfulness and hope. A leader confirmed his good impressions. His meals were prompt and inviting. The house was taking on an aspect of neatness and order, long absent, and his wardrobe was put into as good a condition as its rather meagre character permitted. He had positively refused to permit his wife to do any washing and ironing. "'We'll see about it next fall,' he said. "'If, then, you are perfectly well and strong, perhaps, but not in the warm weather now coming on.' Then he added, with a little nod, "'I'm finding out how valuable you are, and I'd rather save you than the small sum I have to pay old Mrs. Johnson.' In this, and in other ways, he showed kindly consideration, but his mind continually reverted to his work and outdoor plans, with the preoccupation of one who finds that he can give his thoughts to something from which they had been most reluctantly withdrawn. Thus a leader was left alone most of the time. When the dusk of evening came, he was too tired to say much, and he retired early, that he might be fresh for work again when the sun appeared. She had no regrets, for although she kept busy, she was resting, and her wounds were healing through the long, quiet days. It was the essential calm after the storm. Caring for the dairy, and working the butter into firm, sweet, tempting yellow rolls, were the only tasks that troubled her a little. But Holcroft assured her that she was learning these important duties faster than he expected her to. She had several hours a day in which to ply her needle, and thus was soon enabled to replenish her scanty wardrobe. One morning at breakfast she appeared in another gown, and although its material was calico, she had the appearance to Holcroft of being unusually well-dressed. He looked pleased, but made no comment. When the cherry-blossoms were fully out, an old cracked flower-vase, the only one in the house, was filled with them, and they were placed in the centre of the dinner-table. He looked at them and her, then smilingly remarked, "'I shouldn't wonder if you enjoyed those cherry-blows more than anything else we have for dinner.' "'I want something else, though. My appetite almost frightens me.' "'That's famous. I needn't be ashamed of mine, then.' One evening, before the week was over, he saw her busy with a rake about the door. Last year's leaves were still scattered about, with twigs and small boughs rested by the winds from the trees. He was provoked with himself that he had neglected the usual spring clearing away of litter, and a little irritated that she should have tried to do the work herself. 
he left the horses at the barn and came forward directly. "'Alida,' he said gravely, "'there's no need of you doing such work. I don't like to see you do it.' "'Why?' she replied. "'I've heard that women in the country often milk and take care of the chickens.' "'Yes, but that's very different from this work. I wouldn't like people to think I expected such things of you.' "'It's very easy work,' she said smilingly. "'Easier than sweeping a room, though something like it. I used to do it at home when I was a girl. I think it does me good to do something in the open air.' She was persisting, but not in a way that chafed him. Indeed, as he looked into her appealing eyes and face flushed with exercise, he felt that it would be churlish to say another word. "'Well,' he said, laughing, "'it makes you look so young and rosy. I guess it does you good. I suppose you'll have to have your own way.' "'You know I wouldn't do this or anything else if you didn't really want me to.' "'You are keen,' he replied with his good nature entirely restored. "'You can see that you get me right under your thumb when you talk that way. But we must both be on our guard against your fault, you know, or pretty soon you'll be taking the whole work of the farm off my hands.' "'To be serious,' she resumed, accompanying him to the barn for the first time, "'I think you are working too hard. I'm not.' Our meals are so simple that it doesn't take me long to get them. I'm through with a hurry in my sewing. The old dog does the churning, and you give me so much help in the dairy that I shall soon have time on my hands. Now, it seems to me that I might soon learn to take entire care of the chickens, big and little, and that would be so much less for you to look after. I'm sure I would enjoy it very much, especially looking after the little chickens. So, you really think you'd like to do that? he asked, as he turned to her from unharnessing the horses. Yes, indeed, if you think I'm competent. You are more so than I am. Somehow, little chickens don't thrive under a busy man's care. The mother hens mean well, but they're so confoundedly silly. I declare to you, last year I lost half the little chicks that were hatched out. Well, then, she replied, laughing, I won't be afraid to try, for I think I can beat you in raising chickens. Now, show me how you feed them at night, and how much I'm to give them in the morning, and let me take the whole care of them for a month, get the eggs and all, if they don't do so well, then I'll resign. I can't break you in a month. It looks more as if you'd make me. You have a good big bump of order, and I haven't any at all in little things. Tom Watterly was right. If I had tried to live here alone, things would have got into an awful mess. I feel ashamed of myself that I didn't clear up the yard before but my whole mind has been on the main crops. As it should be. Don't you worry about the little things. They belong to me. Now, show me about the chickens, or they'll go to roost while we're talking. 
"'But I, as well as the chickens, shall want some supper. "'I won't let either of you starve. You'll see.' "'Well, you see this little measure? "'You fill it from this bin with the mixture of corn and wheat screenings. "'That's the allowance morning and evening. "'Then you go out to the barnyard there and call, "'Kip, kip, kip! "'That's the way my wife used to.' "'He stopped in a little embarrassment.' "'I'll be glad if I could do everything as she did,' said Alida gently. "'It has grown clearer every day how hard her loss was to you. "'If you'll tell me what she did, and how she did things.' "'And she hesitated. "'That's good of you, Alida,' he replied gratefully. "'Then, with his directness of speech, he added, "'I believe some women are inclined to be jealous even of the dead.' "'You need never fear to speak of your wife to me. "'I respect and honour your feelings, the way you remember her. "'There's no reason why it should be otherwise. "'I didn't agree to one thing and expect another.' "'And she looked him straight in the eyes. "'He dropped them, as he stood leaning against the bin in the shadowy old barn, "'and said, "'I didn't think you or anyone would be so sensible.' "'Of course, one can't forget quickly. "'You oughtn't to forget,' was the firm reply. "'Why should you? "'I should be sorry to think you could forget.' "'I fear I am not like to make you sorry,' he replied, sighing. "'To tell you the truth,' he added, "'looking at her almost commiseratingly. "'And then he hesitated. "'Well, the truth is usually best.' she said quietly. "'Well, I'll tell you my thought. We married in haste. We were almost strangers. And your mind was so distracted at the time that I couldn't blame you if you forgot what—what what I said. I feared—well, you are carrying out our agreement so sensibly that I want to thank you. It's a relief to find that you're not opposed, even in your heart, that I should remember one that I knew as a little child, and married when I was young. "'I remember all you said, and what I said,' she replied, with the same direct, honest gaze. "'Don't let such thoughts trouble you any more. You've been kinder and more considerate than I ever expected. You only have to tell me how she did—' "'No, Alida,' he said quietly obeying a subtle impulse. I'd rather you would do everything your own way, as it's natural for you. There, we've talked so long that it's too late to feed the chickens tonight. You can begin again in the morning. Oh, she cried, and you have all your other work to do. I've hindered rather than helped you by coming out. No, he replied decidedly. "'You've helped me. "'I'll be in before very long.' "'She returned to the house "'and busied herself in preparations for supper. "'She was very thoughtful, "'and at last concluded, "'Yes, he is right. "'I understand. "'Although I may do what his wife did, "'he don't wish me to do it as she did. 
there would only be a partial and painful resemblance to his eyes. Both he and I would suffer in comparisons, and he be continually reminded of his loss. She was his wife, in reality, and all relating to her is something sacred and past to him. The less I'm like her, the better. He married me for the sake of his farm, and I can best satisfy him by carrying out his purpose in my own way. He's through with sentiment, and has taken the kindest way he could to tell me that I've nothing to do with his past. He feared, yes, he feared, I should forget our business-like agreement. I didn't know I had given him cause to fear. I certainly won't hereafter. And the wife felt, with a trace of bitterness and shame, that she had been put on her guard, that her husband had wished to remind her that she must not forget his motive in marrying her, or expect anything not in consonance with that motive. Perhaps she had been too wife-like in her manner, and therefore he had feared. She was as sensitive to such a reproach as she would have been in her girlhood. For once her intuition was at fault, and she misjudged Holcroft in some respects. He did think he was through with sentiment. He could not have deliberately talked to Alida, or to any other, about his old life and love and he truly felt that she had no part in that life. It had become a sad, sacred memory, yet he wished to feel that he had the right to dwell upon it as he chose. In his downright sincerity he wished her to know that he could not help dwelling on it, that for him some things were over, and that he was not to blame. He was profoundly grateful to her that she had so clearly accepted the facts of his past, and of their own present relations. He had feared, it is true, but she had not realised his fears, and he felt that it was her due that he should acknowledge her straightforward carrying out of the compact, made under circumstances which might well excuse her from realising everything fully. Moreover, direct and matter-of-fact as he was, he felt vaguely the inevitable difficulties of their relationship. The very word wife might suggest to her mind an affection which he believed it was not in his power to bestow. They had agreed to give an arbitrary and unusual meaning to their marriage, and while thinking it would have no other meaning for him, his mind was haunted and he feared that hers might be by the natural significance of the right. So far from meaning to hint that she had been too wifelike, he had meant to acknowledge her simple and natural fulfilment of his wishes, in a position far more difficult to fill than even he imagined. That she had succeeded so well was due to the fact that she entertained for him all the kind feelings possible, except the one supreme regard which under ordinary circumstances would have accounted for the marriage. The reason that all promised to go so well in their relationship of mere mutual help was the truth that this basis of union had satisfied their mutual need. As the farmer had hoped, they had become excellent friends, supplementing each other's work in a way that promised prosperity. Without the least intention on the part of either, 
chance words had been spoken which would not be without effect. He had told her to do everything in her own way, because the moment he thought of it he knew he liked her ways. They possessed a novelty and natural grace which interested him. There are both a natural and conventional grace, and the true lady learns to blend the one with the other so as to make a charming manner essentially her own, a manner which makes a woman a lady the world over. A leader had little more than natural grace and refinement, unmodified by society. This the plain farmer could understand, and he was already awakening to an appreciation of it. It impressed him agreeably that a leader should be trim and neat while about her work, and that all her actions were entirely free from the coarse, slovenly manner, the limp carriage and slatternly aspect of the whole tribe which had come and gone during the past year. They had all been so much alike in possessing disagreeable traits that he felt that a leader was the only peculiar one among them. He never thought of instituting comparisons between her and his former wife, yet he did so unconsciously. Mrs. Holcroft had been too much like himself, matter-of-fact, materialistic, kind and good. Devoid of imagination, uneducated in mind, her thoughts had not ranged far from what she touched and saw. She touched them with something of their own heaviness. She saw them as objects just as they were, and was incapable of obtaining from them much suggestion or enjoyment. She knew when the cherry and plum trees were in blossom, just as she knew it was April. The beautiful sounds and changes in nature reminded her that it was time to do certain kinds of work, and with her work was Alpha and Omega. As her mother had before her, she was inclined to be a house drudge rather than a housewife. Thrift, neatness, order marked the limits of her endeavour, and she accomplished her tasks with the awkward, brisk directness learned in her mother's kitchen. Only mind, imagination, and refinement can embroider the homely details of life. A leader would learn to do all that she had done, but the woman with a finer nature would do it in a different way. Holcroft already knew he liked this way, although he could not define it to himself. Tired as he was when he came home in the evening, his eyes would often kindle with pleasure at some action or remark that interested him from its novelty. In spite of his weariness and preoccupation, in spite of a still greater obstacle, the inertia of a mind dulled by material life, he had begun to consider a leader's personality for its own sake. He liked to watch her, not to see what she did to his advantage, but how she did it. She was awakening an agreeable expectancy and he sometimes smilingly said to himself, "'What's next?' "'Oh, no,' he thought, as he was milking the last cow. "'I'd much rather she take her own natural way in doing things. "'It would be easier for her, and it's her right, and—and and somehow I like her way, "'just as I used to like Bessie's ways. 
She isn't Bessie, and never can be. But for some reason I'd like her to be as different as possible. Unconsciously and unintentionally, however, he had given Alida's sensitive nature a slight wound. She felt that she had been told, in effect, "'You can help me all you please, and I would rather you do this in a way that will not awaken associations. But you must not think of me, or expect me to think of you, in any light that was not agreed upon.' That he had feared the possibility of this, that he might have fancied he saw indications of this, hurt her pride. That pride and delicacy of feeling which most women shield so instinctively. She was now consciously on her guard, and so was not so secure against the thoughts she deprecated as before. In spite of herself, a restraint would tinge her manner, which he would eventually feel in a vague, uncomfortable way. But he came in at last, very tired and thoroughly good-natured. "'I'm going to town tomorrow,' he said, "'and I thought of taking a very early start so as to save time. Would you like to go?' "'There's no need of my going.' "'I thought perhaps you'd enjoy the drive.' "'I would have to meet strangers, and I'm so entirely content in being alone. I won't go this time unless you wish it.' "'Well, if you don't care about it, I'll carry out my first plan and take a very early start. I want to sell the butter and eggs on hand, repay Tom Watterly, and get some seeds.' "'We need some things from the store, too, I suppose.' "'Yes, you are such a coffee-drinker,' she began, smiling. "'Oh, I know,' he interrupted. "'Make out your list. You shall say what we want. Isn't there something you want for yourself?' "'No, not for myself. But I do want something that perhaps you would enjoy, too. You may think it a waste of money, though.' "'Well, you've a right to waste some in your own way, as well as I have, over my pipe.' "'That's good. I hadn't thought of that. You are the one that puts notions into my head.' "'I would like three or four geraniums and a few flower-seeds.' He looked as if he was thinking deeply, and she felt a little hurt that he should not comply at once with her request knowing that the outlay suggested was very slight. At last he looked up smiling as he said, "'So, I put notions into your head, do I?' "'Oh, well,' she replied, flushing in the consciousness of her thoughts, "'if you think it's foolish to spend money for such things. "'Tush, tush, Alida. Of course I'll get what you wish. "'But I really am going to put a notion into your head.' and it's stupid and scarcely fair in me that I hadn't thought of some such plan before. You want to take care of the chickens. Well, I put them wholly in your care, and you shall have all you can make of them, eggs, young chickens, and everything. <laughs> that is a new notion, she replied, laughing. I hadn't thought of such a thing, and it's more than fair. What would I do with so much money? What you please. Buy yourself silk dresses if you want to. But I couldn't use a quarter of the money. 
"'No matter. Use what you like, and I'll put the rest in the bank for you, and in your name. I was a nice kind of business partner, wasn't I? Expecting you to do nearly half the work, and then have you say, "'Will you please get me a few plants and seeds?' And then, "'Oh, if you think it's foolish to spend money for such things.' "'Why, you have as good a right to spend some of the money you help earn as I have. You've shown you'll be sensible in spending it. I don't believe you'll use enough of it. Anyway, it will be yours, as it ought to be.' "'Very well,' she replied nodding at him with piquant significance. "'I'll always have some to lend you.' "'Yes. Shouldn't wonder if you were the richest some day. Everything you touch seems to turn out well. I shall be wholly dependent on you hereafter, for eggs and an occasional fricassee.' "'You shall have your share.' "'Yes, I like this notion. It grows on me.' I'd like to earn some money to do what I please with. You'll be surprised to see what strange and extravagant tastes I'll develop. I expect to be perfectly dumbfounded, as Mrs. Mumpson used to say. Since you are so willing to lend, I'll lend you enough to get all you want tomorrow. Make out your list. You can get a good start tomorrow for I was too tired and it was too late for me to gather the eggs to-night. I know, too, that a good many of the hens have stolen their nests of late, and I've been too busy to look for them. You may find perfect mines of eggs, but for mercy's sake don't climb around in dangerous places. I had such bad luck with chicks last year that I've only set a few hens. You can set few or many now just as you please. Even as he talked and leisurely finished his supper, his eyes grew heavy with sleep. "'What time will you start tomorrow?' she asked. "'Oh, no matter. Long before you are up, or ought to be. I'll get myself a cup of coffee. I expect to do my morning work and be back by nine or ten o'clock for I wish to get in some potatoes and other vegetables before Sunday. Very well. I'll make out my list and lay it on the table here. Now, why don't you go to sleep at once? You ought, with such an early start in prospect. Ought I? Well, I never felt more inclined to do my duty. You must own up. I have put one good notion into your head. I have said nothing against any of them. Come, you ought to go at once. Can't I smoke my pipe first, please? You'll find it quieter in the parlour. But it's pleasanter here, where I can watch you. Do you think I need watching? Yes, a little, since you don't look after your own interests very sharply. It isn't my way to look after anything very sharply. No, Alida, thank the Lord. There's nothing sharp about you, not even your tongue. You won't mind being left alone a few hours tomorrow? No, indeed, I like to be alone. I thought I did. Most everyone has seemed a crowd to me. 
I'm glad you've never given me that feeling. Well, good-bye, till you see me driving up with the geraniums. End of chapter 24